Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Barry Holmes Hittner will join us to discuss ethnocide. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, ethnocide reshape our understanding of the past experiences been erased from our history. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Barrett Holmes Pidner. Mr. Pidner is a writer, columnist, and journalist based in Washington, D.C. He received his master's degree in journalism from the Medal School of Journalism at Northwestern University, and he's written on numerous topics, including war, crimes, conflicts, nation building, ever spring, pretty much, and has now penned the new book. The Crime Without a Name, Ethnocide in the Erasure of Culture in America. Mr. Pittner, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great book you put together here, The Crime Without a Name, which you talk about ethnocide. I'm curious, what led you to write the book? Yeah, good question. So the idea for this book has been a long time coming. Essentially, once I became an opinion writer, it really dawned on me that my perception of America's racial dynamics was was different um, because I focus mostly on culture and I view things through a cultural lens and not a racial one. And so, like for example, when I was a kid growing up in the South, I had a lot of white friends and it became evident to me at a young age that we had a different cultural perspective where it wasn't that anybody was good or bad because of the color of their skin. Like our color of our skin didn't have an impact on who we were as people, but the cultural education that we got was quite impactful. And so I've always had this cultural perspective when perceiving race in America. And due to that, it became pretty clear to me as I grew up and learned more about you know, transatlantic slave trade, you know, just history of black people in America, that the destruction of African culture and the, the commodification, appropriation of the culture of other people is a pretty Re- consistent reoccurring thing within American society. And so, you know, the, I felt the need to articulate this nuance so that people could have a better understanding of the place that we live, have the language to better articulate it. And ethnocide is that word that really kind of opens the door to articulating this nuance, this this cultural perspective that I think is so important. Mm. It captures like, the erasure of the culture, of place, of a people's history. Oh, 100%. Scheme of things, ethnocide is a very new word. Like it was coined by Raphael Lemkin in 1944 when he also coined the word genocide. And this is where it kind of blows people's minds where we think of the word genocide as a word that we just assume has been around for a really long time because we apply it to so many things nowadays. And we, you know, we talk about the Holocaust, we use the word genocide. So we imagine that people have always perceived this type of destruction as a genocide. But Lemkin realized that as he, you know, Raphael Lemkin was uh, a Polish Jewish man who fled Europe during World War II. And when he arrived arrived in the United States, he was trying to tell people about what's happening to his people. And 
it dawned on him that it was hard for people to understand the scope of this atrocity because there wasn't a word that was specifically describing it. And so he then created the word genocide to describe that. And ethnocide was kind of like a, a sibling term because Jewish people are a people, a genos, but they're also an ethnos, a nation, culture. And so, you know, genocide became the word that we know because if you destroy the people, the culture also goes with it. So ethnocide became a word where you destroy the culture, but the people remain. And this just hasn't been, you know, it's it's a fairly new word. People haven't thought about it in relation to the transatlantic slave trade. And so I hope my book allows people to apply this relatively new word to this social dynamic in the United States that's been around for hundreds of years before the word was even uh, invented. And now we can hopefully better understand and articulate the place that we live. Uh, Indeed, indeed. Process of ethnocide in the U.S. Was there anything that particularly surprised you about the way in in which cultural erasure has occurred or language wasn't there? So I wouldn't say that there were things that surprise me but like surprise and shock are kind of different like if you kind of get into the weeds and learn about the methods that were used during the transatlantic slave trade or during chattel slavery in the united states some of those will be shocking but they're not surprising it's when you 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 hear like there's this one story that i put in the book about a man in virginia a slave owner way back in the day and in his diary he wrote about that there was a person who he enslaved who was a young boy and he was wetting the bed and he needed to get this enslaved person to stop wetting the bed and so in his diary he wrote about how this kid wet the bed and in response he beat the kid and also beat another person that he was enslaving who tried to cover it up. And then the kid wet the bed again, and he beat both of them again. And then eventually, after the beatings didn't convince this young African-American boy to stop wetting the bed, he decided that he needed to force-feed this child a jar of urine and make him drink it. Like, that is just shocking and repulsive and... It's something that Americans don't want to think could have been a norm, that this, like this, this, this slave owner wasn't doing something out of the norm. But when you think of like the level of brutality that is just inherent in chattel slavery, you're not surprised that someone did it. But you, you, you do kind of get shocked when you see the ways in which they would do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, the linguistic and philosophical approach of the book, very much so a macro understanding that you can't apply at macro levels to really help make it hit home. But you kind of have to start big and go small so that it can be more relatable. And so the, the small details, the nuances weren't surprising, but some of them you just read them and you have to pause and say, wow, like this is this is what our society thought was acceptable. And that people that were considered respectable, smart, civilized individuals would do something that's barbarous to another human being and just be perfectly okay with their lives. Like that's just it's just appalling. Mm. And so you know, there are fast, there are aspects like that that were were, were eye opening. Mm. This idea of ethnicity, the, the erasure of culture, in some ways, it, it oftentimes feels less insidious than genocide because as as you go on, but it's the culture that dies. Yeah. No. There, there's a 
there's a subtlety, you could say, to ethnocide and that it becomes the norm. Where genocide is is something that's so abrasive and is happening and more often than not like a finite period of time that's very brutal and visible. You could see it. You know, like it's harder to to miss it. Uh, when the norm becomes this like systemic division and terrorizing a certain group of people and they we've created a lot of cultural justifications for why this is a good thing. You know, the South had many linguistic justifications for why slavery was beneficial. You know, clearly it wasn't, but there was a whole language that made it sound as though it was and that this became just a normal way of life. That makes it seem less awful than something like genocide. But if you take a step back and you think about how ethnocide, the goal is to have this level of terror and oppression and division exist forever, then it becomes just as bleak, if not more bleak when you really think about it, where like we're creating a language, a status quo that encourages people to destroy the culture, spirit, humanity of other human beings and just act as though that's the natural way people are supposed to live on the earth. Like that's a massive, massive problem. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that that's not how people want to live. And so if you want people to live in a way where we respect each other's humanity and recognize the spirit of each other and trying to create equality, you at the bare minimum have to create the language so that they can clearly articulate that a bad thing is bad, so that we can then start cultivating the language for doing good to each other. And so that's that's the goal. But yes, it, it's, it's way more, um, it seems more subtle. And so it can seem as though it's it's not as severe as genocide, um, but they're both two types of you know sibling atrocities. And you know if we minimize either, that's going to be a problem for all of human beings. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a death by a thousand cuts. It, it occurs yeah. gradually over time, and and it's harder to mount a resistance to it. And so do you come across as it, people recognize that this process is going on, and the resistance then begins to take shape. Yeah. The, the key thing for the how people resist it is that since our society has been ethnocidal since the beginning, it becomes really, really hard for people to imagine what a solution could look like. The solution can seem impossible. And so that's one type of resistance where they just kind of feel bereft of ideas. An- another thing that happens is since America is so accustomed to having conversations about race – What's going to happen is people, especially like white Americans, will think that I'm having a conversation where I'm saying that you know a particular race, like white people, are bad. It's like that's not the conversation. I'm talking about cultural practices that are detrimental to everybody. And since they're practices and they're things that we can create, the goal is to create something new, something better by being more aware of a bad thing that we've been doing for a very long time. And so, you know, you have the resistance where people want to view stuff along a racial lens instead of a cultural one, and that becomes a problem. But once you surmount that, then the next thing is, okay, so what does good look like? And that became one of the first pushbacks um, for the book, where it's like, well, now people realize that something that they thought was acceptable or, or good or whatever Now they don't know what good means, and now the obligation for me is to articulate what good means. And so at the end of the book, 
I, I, I delve into that to help people, you know, imagine how they can transcend ethnocide. How do we transcend it? What are the steps that we can take and how do we address it? And So a key thing that I noticed as I was researching the book is that in you know, Western civilization, Europe, a lot of the ideas of what good was were ideas. They're, they weren't like experiential good. It was you know, there's a, a good place, you know, it could be utopia, it could be heaven that you can get to, but it's not an actual place that lives exist on earth so like it's there are like places non-places so now people aren't sure how to actually live in a good place because good becomes more of an idea and not something that you can create and actually experience while you're alive and this creates this weird dynamic like for example the word utopia doesn't mean good place it actually means good place that doesn't exist and so Within the English language, we have the word utopia, and we have dystopia. They're like the the bookends of the type of world that we feel we can live, which are bad place and non-existent good place. And so one of the first things I did in the book is just create a word that means good place, which is evtopia, where I got the Greek prefix eu, which is pronounced ev in Greek, and put that on topia, which means place. And so the word utopia, the Thomas More, when he made that word in 1516, he actually got the EU from Greek and took off the E, and he got the OU from Greek, which means doesn't exist, and took off the O and put the U on topia to create a word that means non-existent good place. And so I just put good onto place so we can at least have a word that means good place <laughs> as a starting point. So then the question becomes, well, what does good mean in an experiential way? <clears throat> And not in an idealized way. And that's a good friend. Like a good friend is a great example of what this experiential good means. Where a good friend is someone that sustains and nurtures you. Because like if you imagine who you want to be around 10, 20, 30 years from now, you're going to imagine a good friend. If you need help with something, you're going to call that person. Because that person exists in your world to sustain and nurture you. And so good in an experiential way is something that's sustainable and nurturing. So ethnocide is clearly not that. Like destroying the culture of other people is not something that's sustainable or nurturing. That is bad in an experiential way. And so once you start looking at good in this way, you can start having like so many micro and macro changes at a cultural level that impact how you treat other people, how you articulate what is and isn't good. And that starts that's how you can start making that granular progressive change where you can do that at a micro level, you can do it at a macro level, but at least you have the language and the the philosophy that comes with it to start modifying your actions regarding, you know, how you interact with other people. So like a key thing for me is when I interact with people, I always try to have that definition of good that's the idea and that guides how i interact with other people but it also makes it really easy for me to say like that person right there is doing something bad and it's not like bad in some i think they're going to live in some place that's like inhospitable when they're dead it's this is bad because it's harmful to people right now it's not sustainable it's not nurturing and that's problematic and so you know, that's the start. And, you know, 
I hopefully, you know, and, and more books to come, I can continue to expand on this, uh, this, this goodness and this experiential goodness. But that's, that's how I feel are the first steps to transcending ethnocide. We're sort of in a culture now, these conversations are, are more heated, more pointed, more polarized. Than, I mean, how do you see these types of conversations taking place? How do we go forward? So I think the language of ethnocide can be quite transformational for our society because for people of color, it definitely gives us the requisite language to articulate what's happened to us generationally in the United States. But also it gives us that language in a way that's not one that's like racially alienating to other people. You know, we can articulate that this is bad because it doesn't nurture anybody. Like if you are a person who's trying to live via harming other people, that clearly doesn't nurture you and it doesn't nurture the people that you're harming. So it's problematic for everybody. And so now this is a, a way that we can articulate the problems and now we can also start articulating the solution while having a clarity of what's good and what's bad. I think there are plenty of things right now that we could say various politicians are doing that are bad, but not bad in an emotional sense or even a religious, biblical, ethical, moral sense, but like in an experiential sense, like these are bad because they aren't helping people. They're making people's lives worse. They're harming people. That's why it's bad. It's not sustainable. It's not nurturing. And one of the reasons why our society is so accustomed to those being articulated as good is because there's so many examples of harming other people that we've come up with various justifications for why that's acceptable or beneficial when it just has never been that. And so the goal is that we could have a, a shift in discourse and that subtle shift can create that transformational impact because right now our current discourse is totally inadequate and just creates more and more division and animosity. And so if we want to have something different, we have to be able to act differently and speak differently and engage with each other in a different way. So hopefully this language and these ideas can, can facilitate that. We were talking with Barrett Holmes Pittner, his new book, The Crime Without a Name, Ethnocide and the Erasure of Culture in America. Mr. Pittner, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.